This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's the first Monday in May. It's the third. I'm Nyla Boodoo. And here's what you need to know today. The Fortnite fight with Apple. Plus, the push to remember the Tulsa massacre. But first, Facebook and the former president is today's one big thing. Any day now, Facebook's oversight board, otherwise known as Facebook's Supreme Court, could come back with a decision on whether or not to reverse former President Trump's ban from using Facebook. The oversight board, which was created in 2019, reviews appeals around free speech. I'm joined by constitutional law expert Noah Feldman, who's our resident legal expert and has been part of the Facebook oversight board process since the beginning. Hey, Noah. Hey, Nyla. Noah, can you tell us how this idea came to you for Facebook to have its own Supreme Court? I was thinking a lot about free speech in the age of social media, because I teach free speech and, you know, our world of free speech has been transformed. I went for a long bike ride. It was much too hard for me. And somewhere about halfway up, I thought, Facebook needs a Supreme Court. And I thought that basically what the social media platforms are doing is they're deciding on what speech is allowed and what speech isn't allowed, and they shouldn't do that themselves. So they should outsource that decision-making to an independent, transparent entity that would make the decisions and explain why it was reaching those decisions. Is that how it works now? Pretty much. The Oversight Board has 20 members. They're from all over the world. They're completely independent of Facebook. They're paid out of an independent trust fund, which Facebook put money into, but Facebook can't take the money away. And Facebook has pledged itself to comply with the decisions that they reach. And they're now faced with what will be by far their biggest decision thus far, and maybe their biggest decision for a long time to come, namely what to do with Donald Trump. This decision matters for a lot of reasons, but I want to just hone in and ask you why this decision matters for free speech in the U.S. You know, as a technical constitutional matter, Donald Trump has exactly as much free speech rights under the Constitution today as he had before Twitter, Facebook took him off their platforms, right? He can go on television He's not in any jeopardy of life or limb or punishment for his speech. He's not censored. But in practice, if you think about how Donald Trump was reaching the public, he was reaching the public through social media and especially through Twitter. And it's not a pure coincidence that he's been a lot quieter since he went off of those things. So what that shows you is that a lot of de facto free speech in the United States comes over social media platforms. And given that reality, that he's not on Facebook because he was taken off, suggests a change in the way major free speech decisions are happening in our country. And so given that, I wonder how you think we should be viewing these entities like a Facebook oversight board, which is not the U.S. Supreme Court. We should be seeing them for what they are, which is innovative governance solutions for a world where the First Amendment protects Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms when they decide what speech they're going to allow on their platforms or not. So, you know, right now, Congress or the Supreme Court, no one could tell Twitter, you have to put Donald Trump back up again. 
And so that means that the U.S. Supreme Court in the foreseeable future is not going to be in charge of whether you or I or Donald Trump can speak on social media. It means the private companies that own these platforms will be making those decisions. As a constitutional law professor, from just looking at that system, does it trouble you that these issues of free speech are being decided by private corporations rather than the judicial system of the U.S.? Part of me is troubled by it. Part of me isn't. The part of me that thinks that social media is the latest evolutionary iteration of old media, like newspapers, radio, Axios, is not so troubled by it, right? I don't want the Supreme Court deciding what Axios can or cannot say. I think you should have a free speech, right? So to that extent, Twitter, Facebook, other social media platforms are a bit like legacy media platforms. The way I am troubled is recognizing a reality where social media is a bit different than legacy media in that the editorial control part that social media platforms exercise isn't exercised the same way that a newspaper or a podcast exercises that editorial control. It's a new type of editorial control. And so if you look at Europe, a lot of countries there think that the government should regulate social media in a more direct and active way. And because Europe doesn't have the First Amendment, they have their own different free speech tradition, they can allow governmental regulation. And we have to be thoughtful about how we do it here in the United States. Noah Feldman is the host of the Deep Background podcast. He also teaches at Harvard and, full disclosure, is a paid advisor to Facebook on governance and free expression issues. Thanks for being with us, Noah. Thank you, Nyla. We're back in a moment with Ina Freed on Apple's latest legal fight. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Welcome back to Axios Today. Hearings begin today in the Epic Games antitrust suit against Apple. Epic's the developer of Fortnite. They're suing Apple because they were forced to use its in-app purchasing system in their products, which also gave Apple a 30% cut of their sales. Axios' chief technology correspondent, Ina Fried, is here with three things you need to know about this case. Hey, Ina, what do we need to know? So first and foremost, basically the entire business model that Apple uses is on trial here. So Epic isn't asking for money. What it's asking a judge to do is declare that Apple's entire business model with the App Store is itself anti-competitive and to free it to use whatever in-app payment system it wants. The second thing is that While we're going to get really fascinating high-profile witnesses, a lot of this case will hinge on the economics experts. And that's because really what a lot of this comes down to is how the judge defines the market. There's no question that Apple has 100% control of the App Store, but is that a market? Apple, conversely, is going to argue that really the market should be looked at as all game systems in total and that it's just one of many options for people who want to play games. And then the third thing is, no matter who prevails here, Apple isn't out of the woods because Europe has an inquiry on this, Russia just made a finding, and folks closer to home, both in the Senate and Congress, as well as regulators, are also looking into Apple's behavior. You can read more about this in Ina's login newsletter and our new gaming newsletter, which debuts today. Ina Frieda Axios' chief technology correspondent. Thanks, Ina. Thanks, Nyla. May 31st marks 100 years since a white mob descended on Tulsa, Oklahoma, killing 300 people and destroying the economic hub known as Black Wall Street. 
As we approach the anniversary, there's a renewed push to document and recognize what happened. Axios's race and justice reporter Russell Contreras has been writing about this. Hi, Russ. Thanks for having me. Russ, this happened a century ago, and we're still learning about this. What are scholars looking for now? Now scholars are descending on sites looking at what they believe is a mass grave. They're combing through the remains of humans to see if they're related or if they're somehow connected to this 1921 racial massacre. They're also looking in and finding burnt coins and residue from basements of homes that used to be standing in this area. And they're trying to put together the mystery about what happened. This is part of the rehealing process. This is something that descendants want to know about because for more than 100 years, they've had a lot of questions and very few answers. And so who's behind this push for more recognition now to mark the century since this has happened? Well, in 100 years, the survivors have organized. There have been a number of groups to come in and really try to pressure the city to acknowledge their role in what happened. So the descendants of survivors are gathering. They'll be gathering in Tulsa on the 100th year anniversary of this event. The city is holding a centennial on one side and survivors are holding their own event on the other. Survivors believe the city is trying to whitewash the event. Survivors, the descendants want reparations. And the city is saying, well, no, reparations are something we need. Maybe redevelop this area. So there's a very large disconnect. This is ground zero for our racial awakening. This is one of the worst racial massacres in U.S. history. It ranks up there with Wounded Knee. It ranks up there with the 1871 anti-Chinese massacre in Los Angeles. So the people here believe that if we're going to have a racial reckoning, we have to come to terms of what happened in Tulsa, and they need reparations. Russell Contreras is Axios' race and justice reporter. Thanks, Russell. Thank you. That's it for us today. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at axios.com or reach out to me directly on Twitter. And as always, our afternoon podcast, Axios Recap, has more news for you later today. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.